Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Variant volatility stocks fall as Moderna warns on vaccine efficacy. Powell's position, the Fed chair to tell Congress Omicron could mean weaker growth and even higher prices. And meta-merger mayhem. UK regulators say Facebook must unwind its giffy deal. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move, as always. Another day where we search for clarity on the new COVID threat. We know patience is needed, but understandably, at times that's hard to come by. In the meantime, we speak to those who do have insights. Joining us this hour, John Nkengasong. He's the director of the African CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to discuss what they're experiencing with this new variant, their response to border controls and how the world can help. Also, Kirill Dmitriev, the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund. Now, that's helped finance Russia's vaccine efforts. Health officials there say they can adapt their vaccine, Sputnik V, in 45 days to fight this variant if required. So plenty to discuss. Our aim to be measured in the face of uncertainty, as always. And admittedly, it's a challenge today. The CEO of Moderna triggering fresh worries, saying existing vaccines will likely offer less protection against the Omicron strain with new targeted vaccines still a few months away. We'll bring you some context on that very shortly. But if that, of course, has created fresh volatility on global markets, U.S. stock market futures, as you can see, a little lower here. Europe softer, too, after a week at handover from Asia. We've got to expect this level of volatility. There's also a chance that Fed Chair Jay Powell could add to some of the choppiness today, too. He's testifying in Congress and will say the new strain could worsen supply chain problems and make the inflationary surge that we're seeing worse. However, I think we can also expect him to reiterate it's still too early to speculate. And this remains key. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. We're seeing exactly, I think, what we were talking about on Friday. We discussed it yesterday as well. We are going to see choppiness. We're also going to be very headline driven. It is. I mean, I think there's a lot of headline risk for the next couple of weeks as we wait for more information. And I think you're going to hear a lot of pontification And I'm going to say we need patience here because the data and the information could be even conflicting in the next days and weeks as as scientists start to go through what this variant means. What the Fed chief is talking about are the three ways, the three factors, potential risks for the U.S. economy. He spoke about inflation. He will speak about jobs and jobs growth. If people are fearful of going back in person to their jobs, what that means for job creation, job growth, and for wages in particular, and the supply chain crunch that could be exacerbated or continue. If um, if we still have this supply demand imbalance and we have uh, dislocations around the world in factories and because of travel lockdowns and the like. So we are just in early days, early moments here of understanding what the risks are. We'll also hear from the Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen uh, this morning, 10 o'clock Eastern time in the U.S. at the U.S. Banking Committee at the the Senate Banking Committee. She, well, I'd like to know what she has to say about the risks as well, because the backdrop here is a strong U.S. economy. And of course, she speaks for the administration. And this administration has been pointing out, you know, 
5.8 million jobs created so far this year, added back, I should say, into the economy this year, and, and a strong economy heading into the end of the year. 5% economic growth, the Fed Chief Jerome Powell will say this year he's expecting 5% GDP in the U.S. That's the best, Julia, since the Reagan administration. Yeah, and this is so important to understand the relative strength of the U.S. economy at this moment. We can handle this, whatever comes. And I think your point about not seeing the pontification, actually the patience is required until we actually understand what we're dealing with here. And we we have the data, but there is some assurance that they can provide too. We're not going to raise rates in the face of a weakening economy. We are there to provide support as we have done over the last two years. I think there's an element perhaps of calm that they can provide here as well. I think you're right. I mean, the, the measured approach they take. And, just play, and I think when you look at the, the Powell's testimony, he's playing it very straight, saying these are the risks, potential risks to the U.S. Uh, economy. He's not sugarcoating it. This is what they will be looking um, looking out for. Uh, stock, the stocks are up so much over the past couple of years, right, since the, since the bottom, since the collapse in March. Um, you know, I think that investors, stock market investors, should be prepared for some whipsaw activity until we figure out what is, what is going to be the narrative in terms of the variant heading into the end of the year. And as you and I have talked about um, so many times, the vaccines are the way out of this, right? Vaccines and vaccine equity is the way out of this mess. So we all don't learn the entire Greek alphabet. Yeah. Trust the science and act on it. (laughs) Not just about the science. We have to act. Christine (laughs) Romans. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Okay, a voice from South Africa now. A doctor who's treating patients with the Omicron variant says the majority of cases she has seen have been mild. Dr. Angelique Kurtzia, the chair of the South African Medical Association, tempered her remarks, saying these are early days. The majority of what we are, are presenting to primary healthcare practitioners are extremely mild cases, so as mild to moderate. We need to tell you what the symptoms are so that the people can understand if I feel a bit fatigued for a day or two, something, not the fatigue that you use. This is a different type of fatigue. With a bit of a scratchy throat and, and a bit of a body ache and pain and, and, and you know, you know um, with, a, with a headache, we call it normally malaise. So I don't feel generally well. Um, go and see your doctor. I have seen um, vaccinated people and not really very sick. That might change going forward. As we say, this is early days. Uh, and this is maybe what makes us hopeful. I'm grateful to say Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. And Sanjay has a new book out called World War C, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Sanjay, always great to have you on the show. It's anecdotal. It is incredibly early. Can we be hopeful? Can we draw any comfort? Should we draw any comfort from what the doctor had to say there? I, I think we certainly have to you know, pay attention to, to doctors like, like her. She's taking care of patients on the ground. But it is, as she pointed out, early days. I mean, you know, the the information will continue to grow over the next couple of weeks. Big questions. You know, we this has become the dominant strain in South Africa, which is an important data point, Julia. But keep in mind that South Africa was sort of in a quiet time already. Uh, you know, they they didn't weren't having the big surges, for example, like we're seeing in the United States. So this strain didn't have as much to compete against in places like South Africa. We've got to pay attention to what's happening in Europe and then see what happens in the United States as well. As far as severity of illness, again, early days. But let me show you, um, I, I pulled some data from the province in which Johannesburg is located in South Africa. And what you find, first of all, it's sort of their late spring there. But if you look at hospitalization rates over the last three weeks, 
they have gone up. They have not been that high, but they have gone up almost, you know, tripling over the last three weeks. Is that because of this variant? Uh, we don't know, but that's the sort of granularity of investigation they need to do to figure out exactly what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, as we try and figure it out as well, one of the big questions we're asking is vaccine efficacy with the vaccines that people have already taken. Um, and I mentioned already on the show the Moderna CEO's comments, and I'm going to quote directly to be careful. Um, there is no world, I think, where the effectiveness is the same level we had with Delta. I think it's going to be a material drop. I just don't know how much because we need to wait for the data. And of course that we do. But, we, but um, Sanjay, I want to get context here too. Even if there is an erosion of vaccine effectiveness fighting this new variant, it doesn't automatically suggest that these vaccines are irrelevant or they provide zero protection. We have to be very careful with assumptions here of any form. Yeah, people aren't used to thinking of it like this, Julia, but typically you get a significant what's called cushion effect with these vaccines. So the amount of antibodies that you're producing in terms of uh, what they do for the disease. We know with the uh, existing variants, there's a lot of cushion effect from these, these uh, vaccines. So not only are they highly protective, uh, they have, a, they have uh, additional uh, neutralizing antibodies that would offer even more protection in the face of something like Omicron, as, as we're talking about here. Maybe that cushion decreases, maybe it decreases significantly, we don't know. I think that's what uh, the Moderna CMO was talking about there. What is happening now is, is two things. They will take this virus, this variant, Omicron, they'll take blood, serum, from people who've been vaccinated, put it into a test tube, and see what happens. Does the existing you know, antibodies within the blood neutralize that virus? How long does it take? Does it not neutralize it as completely? Those are the sorts of questions. And at the same time, following real-world data, uh, looking at what's happening in places where Omicron is circulating widely, are people getting sick? Are hospitalization rates going up? Is it due to Omicron? So that, that's the sort of data that they're collecting. And, you know, and within two weeks or so, we should really know. You know, Julia, they created Delta-specific vaccines. They created beta-specific vaccines at the time that those became more prevalent. We didn't end up needing them because the existing vaccines worked well. So we'll see what happens here, but that, that could also be an outcome. And this is such a great point. We've done this before. We've created a vaccine that's appropriate for a variant um, and, to your point, not needed them. The best advice for people, whether we're talking about Delta, quite frankly, or Omicron, this, this new variant that we're discussing, um, book a vaccine appointment if you haven't already and, and mask up, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I would say, you know, get, get a booster as well if you're eligible six months out from the shots. Again, you could be increasing that cushion effect that I was just talking about. Um, you, you know, I don't think we're going to boost our way out of this. Hopefully this will be the last booster that we need. Um, but then mask up. You say, Julia, I, you know, we didn't have these high filtration, high quality masks at the beginning of the pandemic. Now they're easily available. Buy some. Get some for the holidays. It's cooler and drier in, uh, in uh, the United States, for example. Buy some of these. Get some tests as well. You can do at-home tests. There are other strategies. Vaccines for sure, but don't forget the other strategies. Yeah. Sanjay, we're grateful for you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. You got it, Julia. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, the Omicron variant has now been identified in at least 19 countries and territories worldwide. Japan and the French island of Reunion are the latest to report cases. 
It also appears Omicron has been in Europe longer than we thought. Dutch officials say it was found in a sample from November 19th. That's a week before the arrival of flights known to have been carrying the variant. Japan's first case of the Omicron variant was detected in a traveller returning from Namibia. Japan's borders are closed as tough travel curbs are put in place in response to the new variant. Christy Lustout joins us now. Christy, great to have you with us. Actually, those restrictions re-added. They were only just taken down uh, earlier this month, I believe, too. What more are the Japanese saying at this stage? Yeah, and it's not just in Japan, but across the region. But look, we're only talking about a handful of cases, but more Omicron infections are being reported across Asia. Japan this day, it reported its very first case involving this new variant. It involves a man in his 30s, believed to be a diplomat, who traveled from Namibia to Tokyo. He tested positive at the Narita International Airport. And also on Tuesday, Japan has completely sealed its borders to all foreigners. That includes international students, as well as people who who may be wanting to travel to Japan to visit their family members there. Um, also this day, Australia has confirmed its sixth confirmed case of this new Omicron variant. It involves a passenger who flew from Doha to Sydney. Um, this individual was fully vaccinated and also had some travel history in Southern Africa. Uh, meanwhile, here in Hong Kong, authorities this day confirmed that the three cases of the new variant are all imported. They were caught in quarantine. They were not caught in the community. But Hong Kong continues to strengthen its already tough border restrictions, some of the toughest in the world, uh, now banning uh, non-residents from a growing list of countries. In fact, it added four additional African countries to that list, including Angola, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Zambia. Back to you. Yeah. Can we talk about mainland China as well? Because I did see comments overnight, and of course, they've followed this zero-tolerance approach to COVID cases all the way along. And now they're saying, look, we're still planning to go ahead with the Winter Olympics early next year. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, despite the fact that you have three confirmed cases of the new variant right here in Hong Kong, which is a Chinese territory, China remains calm and China remains confident, so much so that earlier today we were monitoring a Ministry of Foreign Affairs press briefing and the spokesperson said, yep, Beijing Olympics, just two months away, but we will proceed um, as planned. I want you to listen to what the spokesman said. I believe it will definitely pose some challenge to our efforts to prevent and control the virus. But as China has experienced in preventing and controlling the coronavirus, I fully believe that China will be able to host the Winter Olympics as scheduled, smoothly and successfully. China is confident because China believes in its zero COVID policy, its zero tolerance approach to pandemic control, which involves sealed borders, strict quarantines, mass testing and tracing campaigns, as well as targeted lockdowns. But look, the Omicron variant is a very different beast, and it's hard to be confident given so much uncertainty about this new variant. Julia. Yes. And we just have to wait for the data and the facts. Chrissy Lustow, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so to come on the Omicron front lines, the head of the African CDC on the emergence of the variant and Omicron optimism. Russia says its Sputnik vaccine should work against the new strain. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The EU drug regulator says new vaccines to target the Omicron variant could be approved in three to four months. The European Medicines Agency says tests to see if existing vaccines are effective will take about a fortnight to complete. 
In Russia, there's optimism that their homegrown Sputnik vaccine will neutralize the Omicron variant. But if a new version is needed, Russian researchers say it could be ready for mass production in 45 days. For context, Russia, like many nations, has struggled with a rise in COVID cases and has a current vaccination rate of the entire population of less than 40 percent. Kirill Dmitriev is CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund, which has $10 billion under management. Kirill, fantastic to have you with us. Um, You sound incredibly confident, actually, that the Sputnik V vaccine can neutralize this new variant. What makes you so confident? Well, I would say, Julia, we are cautiously optimistic. And this is based on the fact that uh, Sputnik has so far really neutralized all of the existing mutations. And it's unique in that it's adenoviral platform, which creates more antibodies at some of the other platforms. And it's also two different shots, which makes it, frankly, we believe stronger and longer lasting. But still, uh, just to be uh, cautious, we are preparing a new variant. Just in the unlikely case, uh, we need to uh, change the vaccine a little bit. And as you mentioned, it will be ready in 45 days uh, for the production. But also within three weeks, uh, we are doing lots of testing of existing Sputnik uh, serum to test how it will Uh, affect Omicron. But we believe, uh, based on the preliminary understanding, that uh, our scientists are quite hopeful uh, of a good solution. So you're saying around three weeks to be able to present the data on the testing of the current Sputnik V vaccine response to to this variant. Will you then present that data and allow it to be peer-reviewed? Uh, of course, and uh, Julia, we have presented data from more than 20 countries that showed uh, real-world data on use of Sputnik. Just uh, last week, very important data came from Hungary that showed Sputnik is number one in protecting against death from COVID in comparison with Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and Sinopharm with 98% efficacy. So we have data from many countries uh, coming uh, on Sputnik, and of course, it's been published. Uh, including in peer review magazines. By the way, this Hungary data was published in a peer review magazine. Yeah, it's um, the peer review is, is critical here when we're talking about this data. And I want to reiterate that for our viewers as well. Um, part of the challenge, and you've mentioned it, is the, the sheer number of mutations to the, the spike protein. And we've discussed this now for, for a number of days. Um, why? As simply as you can, why do you say that your adenoviral vector platform is superior to the other vaccines in this specific case? Well, uh, first of all, just to put things in perspective on Omicron, Mm. uh, we know that uh, there are lots of mutations, but also those mutations could actually make the infection less severe, not more severe. Different scenarios uh, about the virus. But here we have done some modeling based on the sequence of the virus. And uh, we believe, once again, Sputnik is a very strong vaccine. For example, in trials in Argentina, it showed that it can increase efficacy of some of the other vaccines by up to 10 times. And this is when we tested combination of different vaccines. So we believe if anyone can neutralize from the existing uh, vaccine Omicron, it's Sputnik. And also potency is demonstrated that our duration of protection lasts longer. So, for example, in San Marino, we showed Sputnik at efficacy of 80% six months out, whereas some mRNA vaccines declined to 30% six months out. So we believe Sputnik is one of the most effective vaccines and definitely will be studying this new variant very, very closely. Uh, I'm hearing everything you say, Kirill, and again, for for, um, completeness, the data that you mentioned from San Marino and Argentina, again, has that data been peer-reviewed? 
So uh, data in Argentina has been peer-reviewed. And uh, by the way, there will be another article published soon in uh, actually one of the key magazines uh, in the world. And so Which far, one? there have been more than 20. Uh, it hopefully will be published in The Lancet. But uh, there are more than 20 peer-reviewed publications of Sputnik from around the world. And once again, for example, this data of Hungary in a peer-reviewed magazine is based on 3.7 million people. Hungary's EU member and its independent research by Hungary that shows that Sputnik is number one. So this is not Russian data, it's Hungarian data. And I think there is this misunderstanding that somehow not enough data published on Sputnik. That's just not true. Including, for example, Ministry of Health of uh, Mexico is publishing safety data on Sputnik that is just stellar. So we have lots of data from many countries and more than 20 peer-reviewed publications. I know. It's the authorization, the lack of authorization in certain parts of the world, I think, that continues to um, make questions asked. Um, Kirill, you know, when I listen to you talking about the efficacy of the vaccine and we talk about the data that has been reviewed and, and which data hasn't been reviewed, I just wonder when I look at the vaccination rate in Russia, why more people aren't getting vaccinated? Uh, your vaccination success in other nations outside of Russia uh, appears to be better. Why? Why are the Russian people so sceptical on a relative basis? Yeah. So, first of all, vaccination rate for adult population in Russia is already close to 50%. And it's increasing. I think Russia was a bit of a victim of its own success because we had few cases in the beginning, so many people became complacent. And now mm. acceleration rates are improving. We hope to get to 60-70% rate soon. But you are right that, for example, in Argentina, Sputnik reduced uh, COVID cases 35 times in the last four months Argentina, but also we have to pay attention to Europe, where Europe is 80% vaccinated and still have many more cases in Russia now, a big surge of infection, because mRNA vaccine efficacy is waning in four or five months. So Russia needs to, uh, of course, improve its vaccination rates, but the world also needs to pay attention to waning efficacy of RNA vaccine, and we offered combination of mRNA and adenoviral vaccines, fighting COVID together, working better together for longer and stronger immunity. Yeah, we can. I mean, we can do. We can talk about the comparison with with Europe, but I'd rather stick with Russia here. In order to get to that, as you said, the sixty and the seventy percent vaccination, would the government consider a vaccine mandate, particularly in the face of continued variants wherever they're popping up in the world? Well, so far, a belief uh, by key people in the government is that voluntarily, uh, voluntary vaccination is really key because people need to make their own choice. And I think mm. we are focusing much more on educating people about vaccination, uh, showing specific results. For example, in Hungary, it's clear that people with Sputnik have 130 times less likelihood of COVID death if you are not vaccinated. So. Right now, government believes it's about education, it's about sharing information, and there is major increase in vaccinations in Russia over the last month and a half. Let's talk about supplies very quickly, because you've said that you can go into mass production in 45 days if required. How much can you produce by the end of this year and obviously 2022 if required? So, so we already have uh, great partnerships with 13 countries more than 20 suppliers in the world, including Serum Institute, which is the largest vaccine producer in the world. So we can produce 100 million and more of vaccine shots a month. And specifically for Omicron variant, if it's needed, we believe we can get to more than 100 million of uh, vaccines by the end of February. So we have distributed production around the world. All of the production issues have been 
uh, solved so we can be a contributor to the fight definitely not the only player but we believe that we can provide 15 to 20 percent of the vaccine need in the world uh, for the next year Kirill, um, thank you so much for your time. Come back, please, when you have uh, more data to share and we'll discuss it. And I also want to thank you because, as our viewers will see, and this is a first for me, I have to say, you are joining us ahead of an important meeting and therefore you joined us from your car. So um, I want to thank you. you I want to thank you for your time because I know it's precious. um, And yes, a car is a first for me and I'm sure it probably is a first (laughs) for you too. Kirill, great to chat to you. We'll speak soon. Thank you. Kirill Dmitriev there, the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday, the last trading day of November and a softer picture as expected as worried investors search for some clarity on the new variant threat. President Biden striking a measured tone, ruling out strict new health measures in the United States for now. But Moderna's warning that vaccines may be less effective against the new strain have dented sentiment in trading. As you can see, U.S. bond yields falling to near one month lows as investors rush to safe haven investments. Twitter investors, meanwhile, trying to access a different type of risk. Founder Jack Dorsey announcing Monday that he's stepping down as CEO. Shares finishing Monday's session down almost 3 percent amid uncertainty over the company's future path. Shares touch lower today, as you can see, that stock trading just over $45.50. Now let's move on. The Omicron variant was first identified in South Africa on November 12th. Now a little over two weeks later, it's the most dominant strain in the country. It was found in 76% of samples genetically analysed in November. Now as scientists race to understand the transmissibility, severity and behaviour of the new variant, South Africa and the African continent remain on the front lines. And joining us now is John Nikengason. He's director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. John, always great to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. And can I also say thank you to you and to the South African scientists and members of the medical profession who raised the alarm on this. Um, I think the world should be very grateful. Um, What can you tell us, sir, so far about what you're seeing, not only in South Africa, but beyond? Thank you so much for having me on the program. As you rightly said, we must uh, owe a ton of gratitude to the scientists in uh, South Africa that have been doing a remarkable job, not just in identifying this variant, but uh, other variants that uh, were reported, uh, the beta variant. And that is really the power of networking and the power of bringing science to drive our understanding of this pandemic. I think um, we are extremely grateful as Africa's CDC for the collaboration with um, our South African colleagues. Now, we know that this variant is spreading very quickly in South Africa. We begin to see a ticking up of, of uh, the beginning of what I can characterize as the, the, the fourth wave in, in, in South Africa, and where the new data and evidence is showing that um, the new infections are driven essentially by the, the new variant. So I think um, in the coming weeks, uh, it will become more clearer with respect to whether this variant is more transmissible. Uh, it will become more clearer whether uh, this uh, severity of disease is associated with uh, people that are coming down with this uh, variant. But we know early on that um, from the doctors that initially identified is that the patients came in with very mild symptoms. And we just don't know what the next few weeks will look like. So we'll continue to, uh, to monitor the situation very closely. 
And at this stage, as you said, it's it's sort of too early to make any sort of suppositions about severity of illness, vaccine efficacy against this variant strain too. Do you have any sense in terms of your investigations already, how and where this originated? Uh, no, we we just don't know, and um, we cannot be certain where this originated. I mean, uh, the story goes that uh, the first cases were recognized, identified in Botswana, and then subsequently South Africa. But identifying a virus, a new strain or a new variant doesn't mean it came from there. It just means mm. that... Uh, you good system in place to pick it up. So I think that is extremely important. But at any rate, regardless of where it was identified, it doesn't actually uh, uh, help it at all. It, what, it, what matters is how we can together collaboratively in a coordinated way put systems in place that can uh, pick up these new variants and share the information so that we can collectively use it to drive our response to the uh, pandemic. So that is what matters so, so, so much. I mean, your recommendation, I've heard you say it many times, uh, better data sharing between nations, better surveillance of high-risk populations too. Uh, can other nations do more, particularly at this moment, John? Yeah, everybody should be uh, doing uh, enhanced uh, monitoring by uh, using uh, genomics. Early in May, if you recall, we hosted a meeting of all ministers of health in Africa where we adapted the strategy and we said we're pivoting towards a strategy that will focus on enhanced prevention, enhanced monitoring and enhanced treatment. And underneath that enhanced monitoring, uh, we actually prioritize um, the, the need to increase our pathogen genomic surveillance. And we have since generated about 50,000 genomes across the continent. That is collectively as a network on the continent. So that is uh, what we should actually be doing. That is, they, would this be the last variant of concern? Absolutely not. We will continue to see uh, more variants emerge, especially as the, the level of vaccination is extremely low on the continent. As we speak, a continent of 1.2 billion people have only vaccinated about 6.6% of the population fully. And if we continue to vaccinate at that kind of pace, uh, it would lend itself naturally for emergence of, of new variants. So I think we have to be very purposeful, deliberate to scale up vaccination in, in Africa. Yeah, and 35% of South African adults fully inoculated, I believe, by the last measure as well. John, what is the holdup? Do you need more vaccines, particularly for a country like South Africa? Because certainly what I hear is that there are enough vaccines. There's just a logistical issue, first and foremost, in getting those vaccines into people's arms. But there also is a degree of scepticism, too. How do we fight both of those things? It's a combination of, of three things. One is uh, initially it was uh, unpredictable access to vaccines, and but we are very happy that vaccines are beginning to come through uh, on, on the continent. That is good thanks to the partnerships, uh, efforts from the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, uh, efforts from the COVAX, and also very importantly, the donations that um, the U.S. government has made. The U.S. government has donated in excess of our 70 million vaccines on the continent. That is the kind of partnerships that will continue to help us 
tilt the balance towards a appropriate uptake of, of vaccines. The second thing is the population needs to really take ownership. Like community engagement and leadership is so important here so that we begin to minimize the issues of hesitancy. It is not a, an overall characteristics of the population. It is a segment of a population that is uh, some people that would just not get, go out and get the vaccines. I think that, but that cannot be uh, the characteristics of the entire population. But we have a work cut for us to convince those people that are skeptical, are sitting on the, the, the fence to bring them over so that they can get their vaccines and, and, and time, especially and especially now during this COVID, uh, the, the new variant there. We have to bring everybody up and uh, to speed to uh, understand that vaccines, the current vaccines will protect us from developing severe disease and the vaccines are safe, uh, very, very safe. and. Uh, we have to also look at the vaccination, the logistics of moving vaccines from the airport to the arms right. of the people. Those are three different things that we must look at uh, simultaneously. Yeah, I just want to bring it back to what you're seeing on a day-by-day -day basis here. And earlier on the show, we were looking at the, the jump up in COVID cases that were being recorded uh, in South Africa specifically. John, have you done any modelling of where you think, just based on the rise and the acceleration in cases that we're seeing, where this might go? Uh, if things continue to tick up the way we are seeing in South Africa, uh, then obviously South Africa will be joining uh, a dozen of African countries that are already moving towards a fourth wave on the continent. That is as expected. Over the course of this pandemic, we've seen that it comes in waves. And when uh, I call it the tip of the mountain, and when you go down to the trough of the mountain, it's, it's about two months or three months there. So uh, we, as a continent, we have seen that uh, that period now of about two months delay where uh, the, 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 the peak dropped and South Africa is not an exception, but we are beginning to see now that uh, the numbers are ticking up. And what is more worrying is that we are moving towards um, the festivity season in December yes. and period, uh, and where people will be moving along. But my advice to the population of South Africa and the entire continent is that as you move towards the holiday season, we should really, there's a lot we can do to limit the spread of, of the, the infection as a whole and the variant. Uh, outdoors activities, increase vaccine nations for enhanced mask wearing. I think that is all variants are susceptible. I mean, there's no variant that has been proven to go through to penetrate a mask. So we should be wearing a mask and make sure that we privilege outdoor activities as much as possible. Yeah. And if you have access to a vaccine, go get one, because at least for now, that's the best protection we've got. John, great to chat to you. Stay safe. I know you're on your travels as well, so I do appreciate your time. And once again, we reiterate our thanks to the South African scientists and the medical community. Thank you. John Nkengasong there, you, Director of the Africa CDC. We'll speak soon, sir. Thank you. OK, coming up on First Move, a green hydrogen future. How a gas pipeline giant is planning to play a key role in the energy transition. Coming up. Welcome back to First Move. JP Morgan warning Brent crude oil could hit $125 a barrel next year, $150 in 2023. This comes ahead of an OPEC Plus meeting later this week. And as concerns rise over energy prices, one company is investing for a green hydrogen future. SNAM 
Europe's largest gas pipeline operator, announcing a multi-billion dollar investment plan to get its infrastructure ready for hydrogen. Joining us now is SNAM CEO Marco Alvira. Marco, great to have you on the show. I know you're going to talk to me about your investment plans, but one thing leapt out at me, and this was that the company sees an investment opportunity of 23 billion euros through 2030. And I like the idea of thinking about renewable energy as an opportunity rather than a cost. Talk to me about this first and foremost. That's exactly right, Julian. Thanks for having me. The numbers you mentioned just earlier about the oil price expectation to go up, even if we take today's oil price, we can make solar energy several times cheaper. But the magic of hydrogen is to blend that cheaper energy and turn it into a molecule. So it's kind of making everyone happy, delivering cheaper energy that the oil companies like, that the renewable companies like, and that will create new jobs. So it's about cheaper, cleaner energy. Okay, you're a prolific author too, and my viewer needs to understand this, and and you're a proponent of green hydrogen um, use in the future. And in the time that you've been writing, and this comes out in the books that you've written, the cost, as you point out, has dramatically collapsed. And I'm quoting you from a previous interview that you did, but I want to get your insights and deeper insights. Um, $1,000 per megawatt hour to potentially $25 by the end of this decade and that's according to the U.S. climate czar, John Kerry, if he's correct. And at that point, we're talking about green hydrogen being comparable to coal prices. That blows my mind. Is that really possible? Thank you, Julia. That is spot on. So I now had to publish my third book in three years because of Because <laughs> I'm catching up. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, always, I'm always catching up. So we came up with this view that that was to say, how do we squeeze the cost of the electrolyzer? The electrolyzer is the equipment that you need to turn water, which is H2O, and solar or wind energy, which is electricity. You use the electricity to split the water into oxygen and hydrogen. Now, we all know that wind and solar are coming down in costs on their own merit, and this is mainly due to the production capabilities of China and the competition on the supply side, really streamlining that cost curve. And every week, the costs are coming down further. But the electrolyzer is something that no one has really looked at and invested in because it's a tiny, very niche market. So we've interviewed all the manufacturers of this equipment and asked them, how much capacity do you need to bring the cost down? Like what's happening with the batteries in in car manufacturing. Mm. And we've come to a number that says, if the world builds 25 gigawatts of global electrolyzer, then the cost goes down to 50 euros a megawatt hour in the next five years. Then it competes with oil. Then it becomes cheaper than oil in some applications already in five years. And if you stretch that further, you get exactly to John Kerry's number. And we shared a lot of this work uh, with his team and we're fully aligned that we can get to $25 a megawatt hour before the end of the decade. And that's the only way really we can get China and India to stop building new coal plants. Oh, and that is exactly where I was going to take you next, because if you make the economics work and it literally becomes equal to in terms of cost to use oil or coal as it is to use renewable energies, then why wouldn't you be greener if you can and get India and China on board and you change the game completely? Um, It's how you're shifting your investment to invest in uh, electrolyzers, as you've said, but obviously it has to be on a greater scale than just you. Does everybody understand this? Because clearly if we're talking about the US climate envoy saying to you, hey, we can get this down to, to $25 per megawatt hour, then the US is surely on board too. Has the investment followed or at least the investment intention followed? 
So the investment intention is absolutely there. And I think at Glasgow, this alliance, the GFANS, there's $130 trillion that are waiting to be invested in projects. And there's $150 trillion between now and 2050 of investment needs. So we have the needs and we have the capital. What's missing right now is that gap between the intention and reality is widening. We need projects built fast. And that is what SNAM intends to do to position the company as a real leader in this, in this new green uh, ambition to create green gases and green molecules. And this will really lower the cost curve because we get to 25 at tw at, by 2030, but the cost will continue to fall. And now some analysts at Bloomberg say we can get to $12 by 2040, 2050. So the point, as you made, is to deliver much cheaper energy, which is greener and creates jobs and makes everyone happy. And I think what the viewer also needs to understand when we're talking about your business specifically, I mean, you have the pipelines and your transporting natural gas. And the beauty of this is that those pipelines can transport hydrogen. So the infrastructure's there. It comes down to the literally the splitting of the water molecules to produce hydrogen and oxygen, which is what we're talking about with the electrolyzers. But the infrastructure for the pipelines, at least, we can utilize the infrastructure that we already have. What about storage? Thank you so much for raising this. This is a key point. Storage is the least understood challenge and opportunity of the energy transition. The beauty of, of this hydrogen, and it doesn't matter if it's blue or green, because H2 is going to be the same molecule, is that we can, as you say, pipe it in the existing pipes. It's the same quality steel, but we can store it of existing natural gas storage that can be converted. And we've announced this yesterday. It was the first time in the world, we believe, that it's a breaking news to say we've tried and tested that we can store 100% hydrogen in the existing natural gas storage, which essentially are depleted fields. These are old gas fields that instead of producing the gas, we use to pump in the gas in the summer when no one really wants the gas because we use it for heating and pump it out in the winter when it's a lot more expensive. So it's also a tremendous uh, business opportunity. What response are you having, Marco? Because I know you're out there trying to spread the word. Um, this could be transformative. Is the greatest challenge lack of education? To your earlier point, the connection between the intention to spend money in project-based work. What do you think is the biggest challenge today? So the biggest challenge is the world has to go from spending $1.5 trillion a year on energy. That's summing up all the utilities, all the oil companies, all the national OPEC oil companies, all the investment funds. Mm. We now spend one and a half trillion. We have to get to five trillion a year. So there's going to be huge bottlenecks when it comes to human talent, when it comes to steel, when it comes to equipment. We need equipment in the ground. The good news, as you say, is that a lot of the equipment is there. One of the biggest issues, and I'm, I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation in, in dollars or euros per megawatt hour, is that there's an alphabet soup when it comes to energy. We have barrels in, in oil in barrels, coal in tons, diesel in gallons, uh, natural gas in MBCF, pence per therm, British thermal units. It's very hard to compare. So we should move, and, and I'm on a mission to convince people to move everything to megawatt hours so that we can finally compare the, the green, the blue, the coal, the oil. Uh, what's really missing is more conversations like this. So I'm now going to Harvard University, uh, to yeah. Columbia later today, to the Atlantic Council. We need to have many more conversations like this to people realize it's it's really the biggest investment opportunity that's, that's that, that I've ever seen. 
you know, we've run out of time, but you also have 20 years experience in the oil and gas industry. And I want to talk to you. So come back soon, please, and talk to me about potential resistance, because as one of the most heavily subsidized still industries in the world, um, getting them on board is interesting, too. And I'm sure they're shocked by the, the price collapse that we've seen. Marco, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And thank you also, because I knew one day my physics A-level would come in. Yay. See you over now. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Okay, after the break. Meta's merger mayhem. Why UK regulators say the Facebook parent must unwind its Giphy deal. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Giving up Giphy. UK regulators want Facebook's parent company Meta to sell the GIF platform. That's those little moving videos. Saying the acquisition would limit competition among social media platforms. Paula Monica joins us with all the details. Paula had to do my little wiggle there. I don't know what illustration that was making, quite frankly, but I'm not sure everyone knows what a GIF is. Um, why? What do you make of this? Yeah, I, I think it's a precursor to uh, you know more scrutiny yeah. on uh, which I'll still call Facebook uh, around the world because of the many acquisitions it's done and its tentacles are in all these different parts of social media with Instagram and WhatsApp and what have you. Facebook Meta, for its part, has said that you know they don't plan on uh, you know pulling out of this three hundred fifteen million dollar deal, but. There are legitimate concerns about whether or not Meta can make it more difficult for uh, rival services like Twitter and Snapchat and TikTok to access GIFs or GIFs, depending on the tomato tomato argument on how you pronounce it. You know, and I think that is definitely something that uh, we're going to have to watch, even though Meta for now doesn't plan on pulling back from this deal, despite the regulation uh, calls from the UK and others. Yeah, tomatoes and tomatoes on this show. It's a pipsqueak deal, let's be clear. But they're even saying that the fact that Facebook was told, uh, Facebook told them they had to shut their advertising business um, meant that it was eliminating competition as well, which I found quite fascinating because relative to the Facebook machine, this is nothing, quite frankly. The bottom line is you're in their sites. Yeah, Regulated I think it's part sites. of a bigger global issue, even though you are right. This is a relatively tiny deal for a company with a market value near one trillion, it really is about whether or not Meta will be able to continue making yeah. action. So, yeah, you are a bullseye target, Paula Monica. Thank you for that and being told to shut up. As always, stay safe, everyone. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you soon. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 